0: Uh, such a Jurassic Park sound, isn't it? Almost reptilian. Uh, Such incredible birds and they're taking their food with such force, it's quite amazing. Ugly, menacing and unhygienic. Just some of the words you might have heard used to describe some of the world's most efficient scavengers, the vultures. These winged carrion eaters have long since been synonymous with death and destruction. Our popular culture likens them to our least favoured politicians. And even children's film and television label them as the bad guys. But do vultures really live up to this cruel and cowardly reputation, or is there more to it than that? Hello, I'm Tom Morath, and this is Nature's A Hoot, And over the next 20 minutes, I'm going to try and challenge your perception of vultures, and by doing so, I hope to better their chances of survival in the wild. You see, whilst they might not be as pretty as a barn owl, or as sleek as a peregrine, vultures provide a vital service to the wildlife that lives around them. There are two distinct groups of vultures across the world. Seven New World vultures, from the Americas including the widespread turkey vultures and the monstrous condors. And the 16 Old World vultures from Europe, Africa and Asia, including the smaller hooded vultures to the gigantic bearded vultures, with a wingspan of over 2.5 metres. These two groups of birds both live to eat carrion they fill the same ecological niche on opposite sides of the world, having evolved completely separately from one another. A fine example of convergent evolution. All vultures are adapted to do their job perfectly. Many are equipped with long necks for reaching inside of large carcasses that they feed from, a head that's free from elaborate feathering in order to keep clean, and a formidable beak for ripping and tearing their food away from the bone. Now, I know what you're thinking, charming, and I get it, but stick with me. I'm hoping that by the end of this programme, you'll have a newfound love for these misunderstood birds. Before they can perform this gruesome task though, vultures have to be very good at finding their food in the first place. A tall order when it's not even breathing.
1: The vultures are really fascinating for me because they were a bit of a, a juxtaposition if you like, that uh, a species like many birds of prey which are sort of famous for their amazing visual acuity and seeing over long distances etc, yet vultures seem to be one of those species that were really suffering for, from flying into things like wind turbines and power lines etc. So I kind of wanted to understand how a group of birds so famous for their vision were seemingly really struggling with this very new facet of their life which is unexpected, massive objects in their way that we've put there. And I really wanted to understand whether there was a visual element to why they keep flying into things, basically.
0: Dr. Steve Portugal is a... hang on a minute, let me get this right... a comparative eco-physiologist. Huh. There. He studies animal behaviour and physiology. One of the pieces of research that he's worked on looks into how vultures view the world.
1: The visual field essentially is the area around your head at which you can retrieve visual information. So it's a three-dimensional sphere if you like that encompasses and surrounds your head by which you retrieve visual information. So it turns out vultures certainly do have quite an unusual visual field. They have really quite a small area of binocularity at the front so there's not much overlap if you like where they're looking out the front And this is because for most vultures, they're feeding on objects that aren't moving. They're looking for dead things. So they don't really have to have high-speed connection between their beak and their feet with a moving object. You know, they can just comfortably land beside a carcass, bound over to it. You know, they don't really have to make fast contact. They also have these massive ridges, if you like, eyebrows, um, to stop them burning their eyes from the sun when they're up high. And when you couple that with the fact that when they're flying, they're typically looking down, because they're looking for dead things and for food. That basically means that they can't see in the direction of travel. So if the vulture is flying along looking down, it can't see immediately in front of it because of these big eye ridges, because of this small binocularity, and because of looking down. So they literally, they're simply not looking in the direction that they're traveling, because over the million years they've been around, there would never have been something up in the sky in their way. So it's a real, novel recent problem they're dealing with and it's not something they can just adapt to overnight basically.
0: But identifying some of the novel threats that face these animals in their habitats is just the first albeit very important step in supporting them. How can we prevent vultures colliding with things they're simply not looking at whilst they're flying?
1: At the moment what we've been trying to do and uh, Professor Graham Martin who's a world expert in in, uh, vision ecology has also been really pushing this uh, with other species notably the blue crane in South Africa. Part of the mitigation is to maybe use noise to make them look up so that basically if they're not looking it's hard to put you know you can't put disco balls on the power lines if they're simply not looking so some way of making them look up. The problem we have at the moment is how to find a solution that For example a noise that makes them look up but often wind farms are quite close to people's houses and obviously the people in the houses don't want a big noise to make birds look up so what we're working on is trying to find a solution that keeps people happy that keeps the companies happy because they don't want to see a drop in efficiency of what they're trying to do but makes birds aware of what's ahead of them and for other species if i'm honest it's been easier to remedy than vultures because of this habit of them looking down So it's still very much a work in progress.
0: This work to protect vultures from their unseen threats is ongoing. And I, for one, am looking forward to seeing how some of these solutions to protect them play out in the years to come. I have a feeling that research like Steve's is going to be the building blocks for any success in this area. Now, how do I plan to convert you into loving vultures if you don't already? Well, here's my three best efforts. Buckle up. First, vultures are obligate scavengers, on the whole, meaning that they don't naturally predate on other living creatures. If you feel a bit sorry for the prey when you're watching a wildlife documentary, you can rest assured that vultures play no part in a hunt like that, mostly. Second, in some ecosystems vultures eat more meat than any other creature, with the exception of flies. This provides those ecosystems with an unrivalled clean-up service. Without these aerial scavengers, where would all that rotting meat go? Makes you think, doesn't it? Thirdly, let's address the elephant in the room. Or maybe the bird in the room. I'm talking, of course, about the ugly label that vultures are so often given. What really is ugliness anyway? One of my favourite quotes on this subject comes from author Matt Haig. He says, If you think something is ugly, look harder. Ugliness is just a failure of seeing. I wholeheartedly agree. And when it comes to a vulture, the more you see, the more you appreciate just how perfectly evolved they are to survive. In any case, what self-respecting vulture wants to get grubby doing their day job? Minimal feathers help to keep them nice and clean. All this means that vultures fill a niche that no other animals can, making them a keystone species, an organism without whom other organisms may not survive. Some keystone species exist in their millions, others in their thousands. But the important factor is the unique role that they play within those ecosystems. They cannot simply be replaced. To understand more, I caught up with the Head of Conservation and Research at the Hawk Conservancy Trust, Dr Campbell Murn who works to protect and conserve vulture populations in the
2: wild. So keystone species sometimes get called ecosystem engineers or species that have a major physical impact on their ecosystem. Um, vultures are really important of course because of their high trophic level and this interaction with things like disease. They're really good indicators of what's happening in the ecosystem where they live, Um, but the reality is that we're still trying to untangle what role vultures have in terms of really important things like disease ecology. That's really interesting to me. So if we change the number of vultures that there are in an ecosystem, what are the consequences for things like diseases and disease ecology? The obligate scavengers are really important because in some ecosystems around the world and I think you and I were talking a little while ago about the Serengeti. And so some of the seminal work on vultures that was done by Professor David Houston in the Serengeti back in the 60s and the 70s, he was the first person to really start quantifying what vultures eat, how much they eat, and he estimated that in that particular ecosystem, they probably eat more dead stuff than everything else put together, apart from blowflies. Right. So when you take a, a a group of animals, because like, there's more than one species of vulture in that ecosystem. When you take them out of that system, there's, there's consequences. And again, rewinding to what we said before, we're still trying to untangle what those consequences are. When you have massive declines of vultures, what does that mean for the ecosystem? What are the consequences of that? We know it's going to be important, but we're still trying to pin it down.
0: With a declining population, it's up to organisations like the Hawk Conservancy Trust to understand the threats these species face. According to Campbell, there seems to be one common factor endangering old-world species of vultures the most.
2: Poisoning's the main problem, really. You know, if we look at, at Africa, Eurasia, poisoning in one form or another, sometimes it's deliberate, other times it's accidental. So if we compare vultures in South Asia, that suffered, some species suffered nearly a 99, over a 99% decline, and that was because of a veterinary drug. So that was an accidental poisoning. So the cattle that they ate was treated with this particular drug called diclofenac, and the vultures' main food source was the cattle once they died. But the cattle often died with this drug in their system. The vultures eat the dead animal and then they get poisoned, and that nearly wiped out three species of vultures. So it was accidental. But in Africa, sometimes vultures get poisoned um, when there's conflict between people who own livestock and there's conflict between them and predators. So if you imagine a lion, for example, comes out of a national park, kills somebody's cow, the livestock owner often retaliates by poisoning that carcass to try and kill the lion when the lion comes back. And sometimes the vultures will eat that poisoned carcass first and they die. So that's indirect poisoning. Or sometimes the lion will eat the poison, then die, and then the vultures will eat the dead lion and get poisoned, that's secondary poisoning. And that's still accidental. The vultures are like collateral damage to that conflict. And then sometimes, sadly, people poison vultures deliberately to reduce the role that they have in terms of finding poached animals that's called sentinel poisoning so the vultures are like the sentinels that law enforcement sometimes use to find dead animals or poached animals and the poachers think that if they wipe out all the vultures then there's that many fewer eyes in the sky that's less of a problem now than it was a few years ago it's still a problem so that's direct poisoning and then the third main reason in Africa in particular is people have superstitious beliefs or um, Cultural uses for vultures so they poison them to harvest them for belief based use and that is a big problem right? and it's a big problem not just for vultures but it's also a big problem for people who want to use these animal products because they've often still got lots of toxins in them so people consume vulture parts and if they've bought a vulture that's been harvested by poisoning, they're very likely to get poisoned themselves.
0: Vultures' problems have been many and far-reaching. Each species faces a threat of some kind. Two main areas of focus for the Hawke Conservancy Trust have been those species threatened in Africa and in Asia. I first asked Campbell about the work that was done to support Asian vultures during what was dubbed the Asian Vulture Crisis, which saw dramatic declines in species during the late 20th century.
2: Yeah, the main thing that was done was twofold, right? One was that the establishment of a lot of conservation breeding centres where there was a safety net population of birds that were brought into captivity in in newly built centres. And that's been remarkably successful. All of those centres have had breeding birds and they're all doing well. So that was the safety net. In the meantime, while those birds were being put safely into aviaries, there was a huge effort on the ground to identify key places where um, the environment could be made safe by the removal of these veterinary drugs and then the third thing is ongoing testing of drugs that we didn't know about the toxicity of. The problem is for South Asia as you know it's millions and millions and millions of square kilometres so you can't just say let's make the whole place safe. So this concept that was initiated in South Asia called vulture safe zones where these key places were identified and literally the aim is to make that zone, about each one's about 30,000 square kilometres, so pretty big. So 50% bigger than Wales, right? So big areas, um, and to make them safe as possible, and that's a combination of door knocking, outreach, banning certain drugs, and yeah, just extension work to make people realise the threat to vultures and that there are alternatives. So there's currently one safe drug that's been identified properly. A second one's just been. Um, identified two, so there's meloxicam which was done first and then tolfenamic acid which is the second safe drug which is not toxic to vultures. So those three things, conservation, breeding, identifying key sites in the landscape where these vulture safe zones can be established and the third one was the ongoing testing, safety testing of drugs to see which ones were safe and which ones weren't.
0: With the success of these methods, what might the future look like for these birds? And are we any closer to the end game of saving Asia's vultures from extinction?
2: You know, part of the process is the long-term process is looking at closing those breeding centres and releasing the birds back to the wild. So just this year Nepal is closing its two breeding centres finally and releasing the last birds back to the wild and, and so yeah, those centres will be closed but before that could happen there's a long long process of of testing the safety and so there's an element of tracking large numbers of birds and there are set criteria for how many birds do we need to track and for how long do they need to survive before we can be X percent confident that the environment's safe enough and that work has been done in, particularly in Nepal. But Nepal really pioneered the vulture safe zone concept and um, yeah, conservation wise they've made great strides in terms of making things safe for vultures so they've really been at the vanguard of the whole effort in the South Asian region. So it is looking looking positive for a change.
0: (laughs) With the Asian vulture population's future looking a little brighter, I wanted to find out more about the work we do to protect some of the most threatened species of vultures, those that live in Africa.
2: Um, Well we do a few things really. One, it usually starts with baseline research understanding a the biology of the birds so that we can understand the threats that affect them. Then we measure the impact of those threats and then oftentimes it's direct intervention. So things like poison response training is the most obvious thing that we do with our partners. We don't do that specifically but we partner with organizations to deliver that training. And other things that might be a bit more subtle like establishing a network of landowners and farmers to make an area safe. So I'd, I'd hesitate before using the vulture safe zone concept. Um, but in Kimberley which is in the middle of South Africa where we've been in, working there for a long time the idea is to set up a large network of people landowners, farmers, whatever whatever they do that have vultures on their land this is all private land, not national parks and do the extension work to make people realise the value of vultures how they can protect them how they you know, can live side by side with them and look after them and actually get this sense of ownership about vultures so that's a bit more subtle to the compared to the poison response training which is directly training people, field personnel how to respond to poisoning incidents when they happen. And then the third one is a new project that we're looking at which is, which is a direct threat to nesting habitat, um, in this particular case from elephants. So we're looking at how to mitigate the threat or the damage, not just the threat but the damage that elephants do to the nesting habitat of an endangered vulture species and how we can stop that from happening. So three different types, really. Yeah. So training is one, extension is another, and direct intervention is the third. It's fair to say that
0: Campbell has sat at the front line of the work we do with African vultures, having worked with the teams on the ground, providing poison response action and monitoring populations. With this experience in mind, it's pretty safe to say that he's best placed to comment on how the population's chances are looking as we move into the future
2: pretty cloudy at the moment, I'd say, from an African vulture perspective. You know, know, we've been involved in more research looking at population trends for not just vultures, vultures are included, and we're looking to see if we can get those results out to a wider audience this year. Um, But that's what makes me say that it's a bit cloudy still. There's still a long way to go. Some people want to talk about... um, you know supplementing birds or releasing birds like we're seeing in south asia but the the suite of threats that african vultures face is still really broad and you know really at the moment until we get a handle on those and reduce those threats we have to try and protect the birds that are out there already um before we release any more mm. so yeah it's, let's see yeah i'm not as fav- i'm not as positive about africa as i'm about south asia
0: we remain committed to our work to protect these beautiful birds and will continue to work to achieve our mission to conserve them with the help of our supporters. On a lighter note, time for our regular bit of fun. So, Campbell, if you were a bird of prey, which species would you be?
2: Yeah, probably a tawny eagle. I think, yeah, I really like, I like whiteback vultures too. But, I. yeah, I think tawny eagles do it for me just because they're... I just like pirates i've always international talk like a pirate day is probably my favorite day of the year i've got greater admiration for pastafarians who dress like pirates and wear colanders on their heads um and tawny eagle is the ultimate african bird of prey pirate so I, i'd want to be a tawny That's eagle you. Yep.
0: do you know i would never have had campbell down as a swashbuckling eye patch wearing parrot training pirate type but i do applaud his choice of the tawny eagle like campbell They're experts in their field, most at home on the African savannah, and are frequently found amongst vultures. Perfect choice. So, vultures then. Now you know how truly wonderful they are, but also how desperately in need of our support they are. I hope that with this knowledge, you have a rosier view of this sometimes demonised bird of prey, because where would we be without them? Nobody can tell, but it's unlikely to be anywhere good. Next time, I'll be investigating the secretary bird and their killer kick I'd like to thank my guests Dr Steve Portugal and Dr Campbell Murn for their time and support in putting this episode together If you want to know more about the work we do to conserve vultures the research we've mentioned on the show and much more besides you can find loads more on our website hawk-conservancy.org Lots more Bird of Prey content can also be found on our social media pages. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and perhaps consider leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts.